Uh, we have a very special guest today, and it's a little bit different format. Uh, last night and this morning, and then the next two services after this, he's actually going to be giving a couple of messages, uh, not an interview. But um, uh, our uh, guest today is a New York Times, New York Times bestseller author. Uh, Eric Metaxas has written great books. Uh, such as this one, I'm sure you've seen it, Bonhoeffer, The Life of uh, and Ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor. It's called Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And uh, this book uh, he personally gave to two U.S. presidents. So uh, he's been in some high places. He's also written a book called, uh, that I really enjoyed, I was reading parts of it again last night, uh, Seven Men, and he has a book on seven women as well, uh, The Secret of Their Greatness. Uh, a book about American freedom, liberty, uh, called If You Can Keep It. Um, excellent, excellent book. Um, and then our, uh, another book on William Wilberforce called Amazing Grace that also coincided with the movie that came out. But uh, his latest book is on Martin Luther. And uh, why is this important? Because as we've been hearing the last couple of months, um, Martin Luther's 500th anniversary uh, of putting the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door is going to be this month. So um, he wrote a book on that, and uh, it is appeared today on the New York Times bestseller list in the top ten uh, position. Uh, I think he's number seven. Uh, he, uh, Eric Metaxas graduated from UNM. No, I'm just kidding. From Yale <laughs> University. So he's a Yale graduate. He was a writer for Chuck Colson's Breakpoint, a radio broadcast. He is now the host of that uh, radio broadcast, Breakpoint. He also is the host of his own show, The Eric Metaxas Show, Heard Daily uh, in our area. He was also, interestingly, a writer for Veggie Tales. Isn't that amazing? And I was, I was watching the video last night before the service on on Esther, and here's he's narrating. That's his voice narrating that um, uh, Esther video. He has been on um, news programs uh, uh, like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, History Channel. He has spoken at the White House. He has spoken at Capitol Hill. He has uh, been the uh, keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. He's just an all-around great guy. Would you please welcome Eric Metaxas? Wow. Thank Eric you. Metaxas is here. Well, please don't get up. Don't get up. Please. Please. Thank you. An all-around great guy. I, this can only go downhill from here. I should not have come out. I'm going to ruin I'm going to ruin this whole thing. So this is our Skip. 8 o'clock service, but there are rowdiest service. Am I right? Jeez. Wow. These pe these people these people are trouble. Ah, <laughs> uh, my gosh. Now, why would anybody get up uh, and go to church this early. I don't really understand. But uh, I know you've been getting up like four times a night go to, the, to go to the restroom, and you're like, ah, just let's just get up. Uh, <laughs> is the paper here? Yeah, I know. Okay, that's funny. So before we get started, I just wanted to show my toy. In, this in, is great. Look at this. This is great. This is a Martin Luther in a little Playmobil fashion. It's a collect. I haven't even taken it out of the box. It's a collector's edition. I... Isn't that cool? I wouldn't even take it off the shelf. But that's, is that, that is, I mean, that just goes to show you what a huge anniversary this is, that Playmobil 
decided to come out with this. Yeah, so it's 500th next, anniversary. And it's next to your book, Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. Um, first of all, I want, we want to find out a little bit about Eric Metaxas. You were born and raised in where? You know, I was pretty young at the time. I have no recollection of this. Okay. Um, okay, no, I was born in New York City, which is a city uh, in New York. Uh, and uh, my mom and dad came from, from Europe. They're European immigrants. My dad came from Greece. My mom came from Germany. They met in an English class in New York City uh, in the 50s, and uh, I, uh, they got married. And if you're raised uh, Greek and German, I always say this. This is, a, this is like a math, ma mathematical theorem or a syllogism. It's just true. If you're raised Greek and German, that means you will be raised Greek. You just want <laughs> you to understand. Because Greece just kind of trumps the other ethnicities and, you know. So I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church, went to church every Sunday, was an altar boy and whatever, but I never really got the guts of the gospel. I know that a lot of people that go to churches, uh, good people, uh, wonderful communities, but somehow they don't communicate the, the most important thing, unfortunately. And when I went to college, which I went to Yale, which is a very secular environment, most you know, universities these days are very secular. But when I went there, I was not prepared for how secular and how politically liberal. It's like everybody thinks this way. And I was not prepared to defend my faith. I didn't even know, do I really believe this? Mm -hmm. I, I never had been told this is really uh, rational and you should believe it or whatever. So I drifted away from the faith. Not in, in I didn't march away, but I just kind of drifted away. And it wasn't until around my 25th birthday the Lord uh, visited me in a dream blew my mind and I woke up and I was totally born again. It was like one of those experiences you can't make it up. I can't take credit, Skip, wow. because I was unconscious at the, at the time. time. Right. Okay, got you it. You understand I was unconscious. <laughs> so uh but but it's it's it was a miracle. In fact the only thing you didn't mention, I wrote a book called Miracles yes. about miracles, because I believe in miracles. And um n nobody here believes in miracles? You don't yeah, you don't I teach about the Holy Spirit? No? No? Yeah, I know you do. That so, section over there just they, collapsed, so they believe in miracles. These are the cessationists right here. Well, i got to tell you, it was a miracle of God. It was a profound miracle of God. And one morning, I just knew Jesus is real, the Bible is true. It's like I, I, I drank the good Kool-Aid, and yeah. my life was changed. And I... Um, by His grace, I've been serving the Lord ever since, so that was... What did your parents think? Um... When you told it's, them that you're yeah, born when you, again when you tell your, your Greek Orthodox dad, uh, who's been taking you to church every single Sunday of your life, that, hey, I, I just became a Christian, that's not going to go down too yeah. well. Yeah, I can it's relate. It's not going to go down too well. I'm, 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 uh, I'm lucky he didn't smack me upside the head. Uh, because he's like, what? You know, he didn't understand what in the world are you talking about? Did I raise you Muslim? Did I raise you atheist? Did I raise you... What, what are you talking about? And of course... Most people in that environment would wonder because they, they don't understand that you have to be born again, that you have to worship Jesus with your whole life, that you have to, you know, you, that it has to be that real. Um, so it was a real struggle uh, for years, actually, uh, because I love my parents so much. And uh, I, they get it now, but it really did take a while. But my dad definitely, he gets it and he... He knows, and this is the sweetest thing anybody could ever hope for or pray for, that my dad knows that the Lord is his friend. Hmm. And he talks to him every day. And, he, you know, that's, 
That took a few decades of, uh, of prayer, and I have to say, what a joy uh, to say that. So, yeah, wow. there's, that's, great. that's good stuff. So when you went to Yale, when you went to college, what were you, what did you major in? What did you want to become? Did, did you always want to be a writer? Well, um, when, I, when I went to Yale, yeah, I was an English major, and I wanted to be a writer. And, um, but the problem is, you know, when I said that, I, I wasn't sure, so what exactly do I want to write? I was really kind of lost. And when I graduated, I was spiritually lost. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to write novels. or I wanted to, You know, you, you have these heroes, whether it's John Cheever or John Updike or, you know, whoever. You just think, oh, I want to, be, I want to do that. But I didn't really know. I, I didn't know what I had to say, and I didn't know what's the meaning of life, and what am I going to write about. And so I really drifted a lot, um, and uh, I always joke around that if you, if you graduate, you know, and you don't, like, know exactly what you want to do, you will drift and you'll float, and then you move back in with your parents because that's, there's no way <laughs> to avoid that. So it's like the um, – but, but it's like a pool filter. You're going to get there. So I – uh, eventually floated into my parents' universe, and, you know, they're thinking, what, what is your problem? Like, we didn't get to go to college, uh, son, and we worked menial jobs to put you through Yale. So we kind of think maybe you should be buying us a house at this point, you know? <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, because e- European immigrants, you understand, like, they have had it tough. They went through hell. They went through World War II as kids, mm-hmm. and they suffered, and they knew hunger. And so... I really, um, I, I was, I was so lost and they were thinking, you know, I, I always felt like my Yale friends, like their parents would say, oh, Eric's finding himself, you know, and my parents would be like, yeah, we want you to find yourself a job, right? <laughs> so get out and, you know, so it was a harsh time, but it was so bad that it led me to Jesus. Have you ever suffered enough that you are open to the claims of Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah. Yes, suffering yes. can be good. Yes. Can be good, but I, nobody chooses suffering, but the Lord used it to lead me to him, and then he gave me this dream, which just, boom, that was that. So uh, it's not the path I recommend, but it's the Lord's uh, path for me. Hey, I have a whole bunch of questions um, about about this book that you have written, but I just want to bring this up again about American liberty and if you can keep it. Yeah. What is your great concern about our country? Um, that it will die and never come back. The uh, What the Lord has done by allowing the United States of America to come into existence and I, I mean, I've already said it. The Lord has done a great thing by allowing America to come into existence. But we don't exist for ourselves. Like when we talk about make America great again, by the way, I'm all for that. But the point, what is the point of America being great and flourishing? It's the same point of, of Israel, right? In other words, the Lord blesses us to be a blessing. So the whole point of us thriving and having our liberties and our freedoms and, and every, I mean, I don't think anybody gets more patriotic than I do because I understand that it is for the whole world. Just as Israel was chosen to bless the whole world through the Messiah, we have been chosen by God. To be chosen by God is a humbling, scary thing. Mm-hmm. It means you have a responsibility, right? When you're chosen by God, you don't go yippee. No. You say, thank you, Lord. Make me worthy to fulfill what you've given me. And this country has been blessed more than any country in the history of the world with this thing we call self-government and freedom and liberty. And I was raised by my mom and dad who knew suffering in countries where you don't have this stuff to love this country. And I know that, you know, in many of our lifetimes, we have seen people forget who we are and what it is that, that we represent. And I think that unless you teach your kids why 
America is different from the other countries and what liberty and self-government are. And the fact, as the title of the book, If You Can Keep It, that we are charged with a job, right? That is, we're given what the great gift of liberty and self-government, which most people around the world would die to have. But we kind of take it for granted. We don't really know any different. Hmm. And we have to teach every generation what you have is fragile. You don't deserve it. You need to keep it. You need to tend the garden. You need to love it and take care of it and spread the word and try to make it better when you see problems, right? But you need to love your country the way we love our kids. Like, my kid is bad. I don't say, like, you're bad. You're never going to amount to anything. You stink. You're terrible. I, you try to love the kid by encouraging what is good. And I think that in this country, in the last 40 or so years, we've kind of caught on to this negative narrative where we, we get stuck on the bad stuff, we, we need to know what is wrong and we need to address it. So to avoid it is wrong. But if you get hung up on that and, and you can't speak positive into, um, you know, the, the, the life of, of the country and say we have, we abolished slavery. Yes. Hundreds of thousands of people bled to death, young men. Young men bled to death. And we did the right thing. We have done these things. We need to celebrate those things. And we need to know that we are going to do more of such things in the future. And I really feel that uh, the reason I wrote the book, if you can keep it, was because it, it, it hit me that we have for 40 or so years not really been teaching how it works. All of the founders, all of the founders, not a handful of Christian founders, all of the founders understood that without faith and virtue... This kind of freedom cannot work, period, end of sentence. Now, think about that. That's a fact from history. It doesn't mean Christians are better. or Of course not. But it means that the founders understood, practically speaking, the liberties that we have, that actual self-government, cannot work. Not might not work. Cannot work unless the people are self-governing, which means we have virtue, and we care about doing the right thing and we care about doing things that we don't need to do, but we just do it because it's the right thing. The founders understood that we have a people that kind of gets that. And I, in the book I go into it, it's because of the preaching of George Whitfield that revival broke out up and down the 13 colonies. I, I don't think New Mexico was one of the colonies. No, was we it? were no, not at that No, time. you're just like 14, right? Okay. So, uh, <laughs> But can you imagine revival broke out? And so practically speaking, all the founders saw, especially Benjamin Franklin, who gives me the title of the book, they said when, when revival breaks out, self-government breaks out. The people, crime goes down, and these people are ready to govern themselves. They don't need somebody looking over their shoulder, you know, with a gun. Like, you know, you could be governed by a bureaucracy. You could be governed by a tyrant. But what about the idea of governing yourselves? It had never happened in the history of the world. And this is why we need to be taught this. Like, do you understand that this had never happened in the history of the world? So we're not like other countries. We are a freaky, fragile gift from God to the world, to spread this to the whole world. I mean, who doesn't know that the Lord's will is that the whole world would have what we have? That the whole world would thrive economically? That the whole world would be free religiously and in every other way, and they're not? So uh, you can see I get animated about this, but I got to tell you, I realized that I didn't learn this. In college, I was taught against this. We need to communicate these ideas to the new generation. And this is my shortest, easiest to read book. I said, if people can just get what's in here, they'll get it. But it really scares me that this late in the game, so many of us 
don't understand it. So that is the long answer. If you'd like the short answer, I also have that for you. Oh, thank you, Eric. I know. I just wrote this down. Uh, Eric Metaxas quote, you are a freaky, fragile gift of God. And that applies to all of us as well. Yeah, I like that. Freaky, fragile gift of God. So good. Well said. So you wrote this new book on Martin Luther, um, and you've written other biographies, of course, a number of books on different subjects. But what caused you to write this book at this time? Well, uh, it's pretty simple. After the Bonhoeffer book, which I wrote, I was so tired, I just thought, I don't ever want to write another biography again, and I'm planning, specifically planning, never to write another biography again. <laughs> uh, and I tried very hard to stick to that plan. But uh, two friends of mine got a hold of me. I dedicate the book to both of them. One is the president of the King's College, which is an amazing Christian college in New York City. His name is Greg Thornbury. And my other friend, Marcus Speaker, who is a German um, journalist who, who uh, uh, is a profound Christian. And I think it was Marcus who got a hold of me first. I was like in Seattle in like 2011 or something. And I get a phone call from him and he says, hey, you know, your next book, you got to write about Luther, right? I was like, what? You know, it was like 4 a.m. in Seattle, and it was like afternoon in Germany or something. And I, I'm on East Coast time, so I had just woken up. And I said, uh, what, what are you talking about? He says, oh, it's the, it's the 500th anniversary, Eric. You wrote the book on Bonhoeffer. You're the guy to, like, you know, you need to start planning now, you know. And I thought, first of all, 2017, I, I don't even know, will I be alive then? Uh, I don't, I'm not a big planner. And then I thought to myself... I just don't know that I want to write another biography. But he convinced me and my friend Greg Thornbury convinced me that this story, uh, that the life of Luther, and I know many of you here don't know this, and I guarantee you I did not know this. Uh, most of what I write about I didn't know two years earlier. Trust me on that, right? And so he said, do you understand the influence this man has had? I just mentioned American uh, self-government and liberty and George Whitfield. Everything Whitfield was preaching, which led to people to say, I don't need to be under any bad authority. I need to have a good authority, a good church, and a good uh, government, and, and all this stuff. And it's my responsibility before God to choose that, not to take what they give me. That idea of freedom and our responsibility to be free and to choose the good and the fact that God has given us that liberty, we don't just get it from Whitfield. Whitfield got it. From Luther, what happened in the Reformation exactly 500 years ago next week, uh, where it all kicked off, and this is why this is such a big anniversary, absolutely, without any question, totally changed the world in which we live. That all of these freedoms, the idea of democracy, um, they come straight from Luther. When my friends kind of got me to see this and got me to see all the ramifications of this, I said, wow, this is... It ends up being, he ends up being literally the most influential person in 2,000 years apart from Jesus. There's no question in my mind. I mean, I, you cannot find anyone else who has had the influence of Martin Luther. And it's not because he was better than anybody. It's just that God chose him at a certain time and used him. Uh, and he was a man of huge courage and faith. And so when I saw how everything I value comes from this guy and what happened 500 years ago, I thought somebody needs to tell that story. Now, of course, others have told the story, but I always want to tell my stories that, that, that God gives me in a way that everybody can kind of read. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be, you know, a scholar. I just want to tell the story. And the second thing that convinced me was that 
Martin Luther and the story are so wildly entertaining. I thought this will not be like writing about Bonhoeffer, which of course is, is kind of sad and difficult. I said this is a, a fun story with actually a lot of humor in it because Luther was not just a hugely colorful figure but also a very funny character. Like the things that he said for good and for ill is hilarious. So I thought this could actually be a lot of fun. And the more I dug into the story, the more I thought there are all kinds of nuggets of hilarity and weird stuff. And I thought it, it will be fun. And if it's fun uh, to write, which is rare for a book, trust me, uh, it can be fun to read. And I thought I want everybody to, to know this story. I mean, it's just it's just a great story. So it took a while to convince me. But eventually I said, you know, yeah, I, I get it. And 500th anniversary uh, might draw some attention to him that otherwise would not. Listen, everybody's heard of Martin Luther. I mean, he's even in a Paul McCartney song. So he's a, a luminary of history. Uh, Can we sing that? Yeah, go ahead. Martin Luther, ba-da, ba-da. Da, Brother John. Da-da, da-da. <laughs> Uncle Ernie, ba-da, da-da. Okay. Auntie Jen. What song was that from? Open the door. And, and let him in. Okay, very good. Very good. I, it's so funny, though, because I did not remember that Martin Luther was in a Paul McCartney song. We were talking last night that I bumped into Paul McCartney in New York City where I live, and I was really freaked out. I didn't tackle him and get a selfie, but I was tempted, man. <laughs> so oh, uh, all the stories um, about Martin Luther, all the quotes the people have made over the years, uh, you have made a discovery about his life. Would you say that there are myths that people have about Martin Luther? Can you be the yeah. myth buster here for just a yeah. moment? Uncover a couple. Oh, yeah. There's a popular myth that uh, he uh, made wings of wax and tried to fly to the sun. Did I mention that? No, this is not true. Oh, that's Icarus. I get them confused. I'm sorry. And Daedalus, yeah. No, but in all seriousness, I never intend to debunk anything but when you go in to do the research, you kind of see these things. You say, that's not really true. That's a myth. And with Luther, there were, I think I counted seven. I, in my uh, introduction, I list them. All the stuff that you're sure you knew about Luther, you know, it turns out it's not really true. The biggest one is the 95 Theses story. Were there 96? There were actually uh, just about 42 theses. That's not true. No, no. we're joking. We're joking. The, the, the 95 theses myth, though, to be quite honest, this is, this is sort of funny, and it sums up everything, right? You hear the story usually told this way. Luther was a hero. He was courageous. Those things are true, right? And he nailed the 95 theses to the church door, and you get the impression that at that point he's all hopped up with rage against the corruption of the church and he's thinking, hey, Pope, get a load of this. And he's like nailing it to the door and you see all these, you see these paintings and things of him nailing it and it just looks heroic and brave and as though he knew he's kicking off the greatest reformation in the history of the world, right? Turns out that is not even close to true. And I want to say this, I mean, obviously this is, this is all in the book, but Luther, in 1517, October 31st, when this happened, did not have the slightest inkling of what he was kicking off. So we look at it in retrospect and we think this brave rebel doing this thing. He became uh, a loudmouth rebel later. Hmm. But at this point, he is a humble 
monk in the Catholic Church who loves his church and who is serving his church humbly, hoping to get them to see what he sees. And at this point, this is barely at that point, all he's focused on is indulgences. He's not talking about works. He's not talking about the Bible versus the authority of the church. He's not talking about any of this. All he noticed was that there's a practice called indulgences, which is harming the faithful. The faithful are getting the impression that they can pay money and buy their way out of purgatory or hell, or they can pay for a sin in advance or, or, or whatever. Um, so Luther says, as a humble monk and a theologian at the University of Wittenberg, it is my duty to bring this, uh, th- what I see wrong, uh, to the attention of, of people who will care. So let's have an academic debate. That's what they did in those days. And um, we'll just have an academic debate. So I'm going to post 95 points, debate points, um, and we'll write it in Latin because this is only meant for the eyes of theologians, not for everybody walking down the street. They can't read Latin. And um, I'll post it on the local bulletin board, which uh, you know used to be down by the laundry room, but now it's the church door. <laughs> the church door, we get the impression that Luther thought, what is the most, you know, infuriating place that I can put this document. I got it and put it right on the church door. No, that's not true. The church door was the community bulletin board. Hmm. It was where if your cat was missing, you'd put a little flyer there. (laughs) Guitar lessons, you'd put a flyer. I mean, folks, imagine this was a humble monk who loved his church, who never dreamt, never dreamt of a split in the church. Do you understand? In 1517, wasn't a gleam in his eye. Wasn't a distant thought. He was humbly putting up a notice for an academic debate. That's it. And of course, it ends up being misinterpreted and exploding and going crazy. And it leads to everything we're talking about. But when he did it, he was not some heroic guy saying, I'm going to start trouble today. And by the way, speaking of the day, another myth, everybody says, oh, it happened October 31st, 1517. Everybody knows that. Nobody knows that. Hmm. Nobody knows what day he nailed them. It was probably within two weeks of that date. What happened on that date? He mailed a letter. Now, mailing a letter is not as heroic seeming, you know, like imagine like a great painting of Luther mailing a letter. It's not really very dramatic. So... Nobody cares about the fact that that's really what happened on that date. And then the final thing is, he may not have used a hammer and nails. He might have used paste. I mean, that's not as heroic either, like slop, slop, stick. It's not as, you know, a hammer is this thing. And then finally, he may not even have done it himself. He may have given this to the church custodian. Not, this is not a joke, because they posted things. So... This is an example of how, in retrospect, you look back and this thing becomes, everybody knows exactly what happened October 3rd. You'll hear this a zillion times, you know, nine days from today. You're going to hear this in the news. This was the day. And, you know, I'm not trying to debunk it, but I'm saying that we actually don't know that. So there you go. And you also mentioned something last night about his wife being oh, snuck away. Yes. So this he, is, tell yeah. his wife, was she a former nun? Um, first, she was a nun. And then she became former nun. Um, okay. You'd have to be a nun first. Okay. You know, you, you follow and this? So you come to a point so, where you say, I want none of this. Oh. 
That was very clever. Okay. You got out of that one. That was great. Um, this is actually amazing. And there's so much. I mean, forgive me. There's so much in this story that is I learn. I get, what happens is I learn and I get excited and I want everybody to know. Um, at the time of Martin Luther, one of the injustices that he, he finally saw, there were tons of nuns who, I didn't mean that to rhyme, there were many nuns, a plethora of nuns, <laughs> who, who were sent into the nunnery as little girls. So they clearly had no choice in the matter, right? When they came of age, they weren't given a choice. It's like, well, now you're 18, do you want to stay in the nunnery, whatever. They were like in prison. There was no way legally to ever leave the nunnery. Now, again, if you're a Christian, you believe in freedom. You believe that we have to choose our faith. We have to choose it. We don't, we don't say, well, you, you have to legally. They, they would have been in huge trouble if they tried to leave the nunnery or if somebody, you know, uh, helps a nun to escape. You could. That's like capital punishment. That's like somebody escaping from prison. So Luther, at some point, understands that there are many nuns who have begun reading his works. So this is, I think, 1526, 25 or 26. I can't remember. But a lot of people have been reading his works, and so a number of these nuns realize, yes, I am, you know, whatever, 24 years old. I don't want to be here. Um, I would rather get married and have a family, but I, I don't get the choice. And so Luther took it upon himself in, in a rather incendiary way at this point to spring 12 of these nuns from this Nimshin convent. Um, that's a big deal. He planned the whole thing. He, you know, worked with this guy that he knew who was going to drive the wagon and they're going to escape and all this stuff. And so anyway, the wagon, you know, they had to sneak out uh, on, it was Holy Saturday, and uh, get on the wagon, and under cover of night, they escaped. So Luther arranged this whole thing, and one of these nuns ends up coming to Wittenberg, didn't have a, you know, didn't want to marry the guy that they were sort of pushing on her, and suggests to Luther's colleague, Nicholas von Amsdorf, like, I, I, I don't want to marry that strange guy that you picked out for me, but I would marry you or Dr. Luther. So it's kind of a cheeky proposal on her part. She sort of proposed <laughs> marriage. So Luther ends up marrying her, Eventually, but the story is that when she escaped this convent with these other nuns, they hid in herring barrels, smelly fish barrels, barrels used to transport herring. That story is everywhere. Everywhere you look, you will read that story, you will hear that story. If you go to Germany and get a tour on Luther, guaranteed you'll hear that story. And when I read that, I was like, I'm excited, I hope this is true. And I looked into it. And not only are we not sure, kind of like with Luther, we're not sure what day he nailed it. Maybe he nailed it October 31st, but maybe not. In this case, I can say for sure the whole herring barrel story is total fiction. I even figured out where it came from, but it did not happen. And Sounded keeps, fishy to begin oh, with. Oh, he's been, he's been holding that for four <laughs> minutes, just waiting to... So, but I mean, what honestly... On a scale of one to ten, well... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. A scale of one to ten. You yeah. see, you get that? Yeah. Yeah. It's really important that you get that joke <laughs> because almost nobody would. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so 100 years from now, people can watch this video and they're going to go, Skip was sharper than we thought. Like, look what he did there. Look what he did. That, now, it's kind of funny because the story is so funny that you want it to be true, but 
it's, there were a number of things in the story of Luther that I realized that's simply not true. Another one of the myths is that he was raised poor. I mean, when you become like this saintly figure, the hagiography, you know, over 100 years, 200 years, 200 years, they make him out to be this incredible person. He was raised very poor. His father, you know, was a cruel father. And none of that is true. Luther was, in fact, research was done. And again, this is in the book, but literally in 2003, archaeology was done. His childhood home turned out to be three times larger than we've been saying for 500 years. He was raised, uh, you know, with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. I shouldn't say that. He wasn't wealthy, but he lacked for nothing. Huh. And his father was able to send it. Now, I should clarify. He always would say, my father was a, was a poor miner. That's like Jimmy Carter being like a poor uh, peanut farmer. I, I saw his hands. I, I met him. There's, there's no dirt under the fingernails. He's a <laughs> businessman who worked in that business. So Luther's father owned four smelt works in the mining business of Mansfeld. He was, he was a successful, hardworking businessman. So Luther was not raised in these incredibly humble circumstances that you hear over and over and over. It's just not, it's not true. And now we have archaeological proof and other things. But again, in the book, I, you know, you sort of, I, when, when I'm telling a story like this, I want to make sense of things. Yeah. And I thought, so how did he go to all these great schools and learn Latin and go to the university if his father was a humble miner? And you, as you do the research, you understand that's just one of those myths that even Luther kind of played on it in latter years to be humble. You know, he would say that kind of stuff, but it, it just wasn't true. So there's a lot of stuff uh, that you realize it's either not true or it's half true. Uh, one of the uh, things you bring out in the book is that, and you touched on it, is that his personality kind of morphed over the years, that he started out more serious, but became a little more flamboyant and boisterous. And yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, he wore sequined capes later in his life. Very flamboyant. He was. He was Liberace <laughs> of his day. That's not true. That's not true. I'm just making sure it's early. I want to see if you're awake. Uh, basically, it is true that he starts out really humble and intense and passionate and that is sort of transmuted later on into him being very outspoken and brash and colorful and vulgar. And uh, it's the same guy, but you see over the course of time. And to explain part of it, this was a man obsessed with salvation. He was a man who left what his father had chosen for him. His parents had sacrificed. You know, I think of my parents, right? You sacrifice for your kids. And if your kids treat it like nothing, you want to kill them. You're like, do you understand how much we sacrificed for you? Luther's father and mother sacrificed so that he could go to this university. And Luther, who became obsessed with heaven and hell and salvation, blows it off and goes to the monastery and says, I'm going to be a monk against my father's wishes. And later on in life, he sort of regretted that. But the point is that he was so obsessed with this question of, am I going to hell forever? I don't want to. And so the only safe thing you could do is get out of all that stuff and enter holy orders. Whatever it is you're doing can't compare to being a priest or a monk or a nun. Now today, thanks to Luther, we know that's not true. We know that everybody's equal in the eyes of God. And the Lord wants to redeem whatever job you have, whatever you're doing, whether you're married or not. or whatever. The Lord wants to come into that. But in those days, they had this kind of two-tiered system where the, you know, the good guys are the monks and the priests and whatever, very special, and everybody else is just you, you know. And Luther said, well, I don't want to take any chances with salvation. So he becomes a monk. And the intensity of this young man, brilliant, sensitive, he basically 
prays harder than anybody because he realized I got to work my way up the ladder to get to heaven, right? I got to score points. So he's praying, fasting till he's skin and bones, depriving himself even of, of warmth. He would be in the cold and, you know, it's like I'm getting points for suffering. And that's the way people thought. And he would confess every thought. His father confessor was being driven crazy that Luther would confess every semi-thought that was questionable. He'd confess and confess and he was driving everybody crazy. And Luther realizes at some point that trying to climb to heaven, trying to earn heaven on my own is making me more miserable. I'm not finding the peace of God. Uh, Luther's father confessor von Staupitz, whom he, um, who's a, an important figure in the book, uh, was saying to Luther, you, you don't love God and you don't think God loves you. You seem to hate God and you think God hates you. But you're acting as though he's this judge that wants to send you to hell. And Luther was like, yeah, that's the impression I'm getting. So he basically is furiously trying to earn his way into the presence of God, into the peace of God, into heaven, getting nowhere. And we all know that's the whole point of the law. That's the whole point. You can't do it. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. Jesus has to redeem you. Jesus has to pay the price. And the only time you get that is the time you can get saved. Yes, I mean, yes. that's, that's the only time if you want peace with God. So when that finally hits Luther around 1517, he, he has a number of observations and he sees in Romans the idea that the righteousness of God is appropriated by faith. That's it. You believe in the righteousness of God given to you as a gift, a free gift. The good news changes everything. So Luther then goes on a path of trying to tell the world about these things. And in the course of that, the, the, the church dealt with him very, very unfortunately and did not really want to hear it. I mean, when you have power, you don't want some whistleblower to come and tell you what you're doing wrong. So they just tried to crush him and shut him up. And as a result of that, more and more and more, he became outspoken. So that the latter part of his life, he does seem like this flamboyant, uh, not quite cape-wearing, but flamboyant... This must be the 8 o'clock service. The 1045 would have laughed at that stupid joke. Um, I apologize. Um, the, uh, the whole thing is that it's the same man, but his personality is filtered through completely different circumstances. At first, he's this intense young man trying to earn salvation, reading the scriptures like a maniac, trying to find the clue to what's the golden key to salvation. Maybe it's in the scriptures. And when he finds it, a change begins to happen. And so he becomes the Luther that we know. You know, we think of him as this heavy set, uh, blunt, sometimes vulgar figure, very different from the skin and bones young man who appeared at the Diet of Worms or, or uh, who nailed the 95 Theses. Okay, so what's the most surprising thing you discovered about Martin Luther? Um, okay. I'm going to tell this very quickly. This was, this was a mind blower. And if you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read the book, it's, it, this seems impossible, but I guarantee you this is true. Um, Luther was born on November 10th. And the very next day, his family takes him to church to baptize him because they were, again, very afraid of eternal damnation. They got to baptize him. So... The day they take him to the church is November 11th. What's November 11th? St. Martin's Day in the Catholic Church. So they say we're going to baptize him and name him Martin. End of story, right? 
No. Because I felt the Holy Spirit give me a nudge. I'm not making this up. It was kind of like this weird, look into this. And I thought, mm, all right, let me, let me look into this. Who's St. Martin? Now, why would anybody care, right? It, it's, he's just named, it's the, it's the feast day, it's November 11th, he's named Martin, and let's move on. Well, there's a curious parallel that I discovered between St. Martin and Martin Luther. 11 centuries apart... Uh, I don't think they ever met each other, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, but here's what happened. Luther, you know, at the Diet of Worms, Worms, Germany, he is told to go to Worms, Germany to give an account for himself in 1521, so that's four years after the nailing of the 95 Thesis. These things have exploded, and he is now finally called to give an account before the emperor. The Holy Roman Empire was in power. Luther has said things that have infuriated the church, the Vatican, the Pope, and the Holy Roman Emperor and the Empire, who are all obviously Catholic and have allegiance to the Pope. So he is called to the city of Worms, Germany. Have you ever heard of Worms, Germany, except to describe the Diet of Worms? The Diet is this convocation, this congress where they get together and stuff. Nobody's ever heard of Worms or Worms except for this, right? So... Luther goes there and he faces death. He faces death. He stands as a Christian for truth. And by the grace of God, by taking the stand, Luther does not die. And this ends up becoming the most important moment in his life. We look back at 1521 Diet of Worms as this incredibly heroic moment that absolutely changed the world, and it did. Well, who was St. Martin? St. Martin in the early 400s was... A Roman soldier, he was in the Roman army, he didn't serve in battle, but he became a Christian against his family's wishes, and at some point, in a place called Borba Tamegos, that's the Latin name, he is called to a battle, and he says, as a Christian, I cannot and will not fight, I will not kill, it's like Hacksaw Ridge, he said, I, I will go into the battle, but I will not kill, and so he now is faced with a Christian stand in front of the empire, the Roman Empire, not the Holy Roman Empire that Luther stood in front of 11 centuries later, but the, in front of the Roman Empire to stand as a Christian for what he believes. He could easily be killed for refusing to obey his commander. Wow. He faces death for his Christian faith. He doesn't die, and this becomes the most famous moment in his life. So you see the parallels, right? Yes. Amazing parallels. Yes. Not a third as amazing as what I'm now going to tell you. Borbatamagos, where this happened to this guy named St. Martin of Tours. I said, where the heck is that? I look it up. Modern day Worms, Germany. Amazing. That's the weirdest thing. I, I, I can't even remember what, how long I sat there trying to process what I just read. This doesn't make any sense. If you think that's a coincidence, you're being irrational. That is God, who is the author and sovereign of history, speaking. And, and guess what? No one has ever noticed this or written about this before. I've never seen this anywhere. The Lord allowed me to notice this. I think he pushed me to look at it. And now it's in my book, and now we can all say, look at this God we serve, how outrageous and amazing he is, that 11 centuries before Luther took his famous stand that changed the world and gave us the freedoms and everything that we have ultimately. God put a man in place, in this place, to do this thing. I mean, it actually 
makes it very tough for us to process. But I guarantee you that's what happened. And I, I just – it's so astounding. It's like there's no way to, to say anything except yeah. God is amazing. It is pretty amazing. Eric, you say that we have uh, a great debt that we owe Martin Luther, but we just want to say that we feel we have a debt of thanks and gratitude to you. God's put you in some very unique places, high places, influential places, and I know your heart is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in, uh, in the purview of people who would never otherwise be able to hear it. Well, it, it, it's right, and, I, and I, um, you remind me to say that literally today, which is Sunday, the 22nd of October, is that right? Yes. Today, uh, this book de- debuts on the New York Times bestseller list at number seven. Now, I want to tell you, folks, for a book about a German theologian filled with the gospel to appear on the New York Times bestseller list at that level is a gift of the Lord. And I will tell you this. It's not about me or the book. My, my hope is that literally today, and I ask you to pray for this, there are going to be many, 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 many people who read the New York Times who are going to notice this, and right next to it is a squib with my picture and a small interview, which they decided to single me out of all the people on those list to do a little featurette on me and mention the book. Because of that, people who don't know Jesus, who never would read a Christian book, I think will be tempted to read this book published by Viking Press, New York City, New York Times bestseller I think a lot of people who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ will read the book. That is my prayer. And I got to tell you, the thought of that, you know, uh, sometimes you get overwhelmed by the goodness of God. It's too much. You say, Lord, I can't take it. The idea that the Lord will allow me to be used in that way, that people around the country who would never read a book uh, by a pastor or about, about an overtly Christian subject, they might say, oh, this is important history. I saw something on PBS. Maybe I'll read the book. Through the book, they're going to encounter the good news over and over and over again. And by the grace of God, he could reach them the way he reached a huge sinner like me. So that thrills me. And awesome. uh, I praise God. I can't even Amy, believe it. Well, yeah. we rejoice with you. Thank you. Listen, we've got to get you to sign yeah. some books. Yeah. So yeah. why yeah. don't you close us out in prayer? I will do it. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We rejoice in you, Lord. Lord, we know that we do not deserve to know you. We do not deserve to love you or know your love. By your grace, you have allowed us to know you and to love you. And to rejoice in you. Lord, we are so grateful to you. We praise you from the bottom of our hearts. And we ask you, Father God, use us. Those of us you have blessed. Use us to be a blessing to those not yet blessed. Use us, Jesus, to preach your good news and the liberty, Lord, that you have put in us, Lord God. The free gift of liberty in you, Lord. The free gift of salvation through Jesus. Lord, use us in this place in your way to bring glory to your name. Yes. Amen.